Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the word of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct, conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask for your help as we, as I preach this passage, we set our minds on it. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us with these words. And Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we've been in this last chapter of Second Peter, the thing that struck me most is the importance of Christians anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. That this should be something that we are thinking about, that this should be something that animates us, that gets us up in the morning uh, in anticipation for the things that that lie ahead. Um, Even so, come Lord Jesus is the desire of every instructed saint, right? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Suffering Christians, especially suffering Christians, and who of us in some, you know, who of us is not suffering in some way under the effects of sin, both uh, personally and societally? I mean, we, we all have suffering that we're enduring as Christians. But suffering Christians especially should long for the end of suffering by the return of their king, their rightful king. King who is named faithful and true, right? Who, who will ride on a white horse, and when he rides on that white horse, his eyes will be a flame of fire, it says. His eyes will be a flame of fire. 
We're on the verge of celebrating Advent and uh, Christmas. And the meditation we take away from that season is the incredible condescension and humility of the Son of God. That the Son of God, that Almighty God, would take on the form of a slave, that he would be born of a woman, he would be made in the likeness of men. That something so, so huge would become so little, right? He was born of a woman, God. And we are overwhelmed by the thought that, uh, that Almighty God would stoop so low. But our passage in 2 Peter, on the other hand, looks forward to the time when Jesus will be revealed in his full majesty, his full glory, his holiness. He will not be little. He will not be weak. He will be revealed in all of his fierce greatness. His eyes will be a flame of fire and on his head will be many crowns, many diadems. No longer the manger scene, right, with the Son of God covered in blood from birth. Amazing in its own way. Now the potentate of time in a robe dipped in blood will lead the armies of heaven. He will strike down the nations with the sword that comes from his mouth, and he will rule those nations with a rod of iron. The King of kings and Lord of lords will stamp his feet with all of his strength in the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And, writes Peter, that day, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That day, that's what happens. We concluded last time with the declaration of God's patience. He is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Right? But there is a day appointed Right? There is a day appointed when, when there's no more patience. When he won't wait any longer. And Peter tells us that day, which most assuredly will come, will come like a thief in the night. It will be sudden. The Apostle Paul taught the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Jesus spoke of his return with these words, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I can't wait to hear those words. Those words will really be said. And they will really enter into your, into your ears. You will hear those words. 
Jesus doesn't mention, of course, any fire or destruction of elements or the burning up the earth and its works. So, um, so what do we do with that? But, but that is not to say that those elements will be missing from his return or that his return will be like those destructive sorts of forces. We have to remember that he does intend to make all things new. There will be radical transformation of things. And the only way to properly encapsulate that is to say, it's going to be like fire destroying everything and new life coming out of that destruction. As Peter writes ahead in the verses, we expect newness coming out of the cataclysmic force of Christ's second coming. He writes, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So often people believe that this passage means that God will do away with all the physical stuff in the world. Right? So that we can live in a pure spiritual sort of existence. That's to take these verses and make them overrule every other verse in the Bible. Actually, it's to, it's to misinterpret these verses because they do not teach a final destruction of the physical universe, but rather a refining through fire. Through the fire of Christ's wrath, through, the, through when he returns, there is fire that comes forth from his eyes, right? The burning of his eyes, all of which leads to that new heavens and new earth. When we die, it's true, our souls go immediately to be with the Lord, or for the unbeliever, they immediately go to hell. But that is not the final state. That's not the final state. On the great day of the Lord on Jesus' return, this is what happens. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now that seems to say the opposite of what I'm saying, but remember that it says Jesus is descending from heaven to earth. Those who meet him in the air will finish with him that descent to the earth, and we shall ever be with the Lord. And where does the Lord reign? The Lord reigns on the earth, where God will dwell among his people as he did in those days of bliss in the Garden of Eden. God will dwell among his people. And all things will be made new by the fierce and transformative presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The fire of his presence will destroy the old order and bring in the new. That's what I believe Peter is getting at in this passage. But we skipped over we skipped over what he says in the middle of it. There's an exhortation in the middle of his eschatological explication. Right? Thinking on the intensity of the second coming of Jesus Christ, which will be like a thief in the night, Peter exhorts us to what? He says, knowing that this is going to happen, be holy. Be holy. 
Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? First, the first thing I would say as I reflected on this passage is you should not promise yourself tomorrow. You should not promise yourself tomorrow. Tomorrow may be the day when Jesus comes like a thief in the night. I know that's a provocative statement because all of us want to throw up roadblocks for Jesus' returns. All of us have eschatologies that throw up roadblocks for Jesus coming back. Do you realize that? There are things that happen when they come back, but they are hard to discern. Okay? And yet time and time and time and time and time again, the apostles keep telling us to fix our hope on the blessed return of Jesus Christ. And yet all of us stop it and say, well, no, I'm going to look for this and this and this and this and this and this first. And then maybe we can... But they just go straight for the event, right? And so knowing that, you shouldn't promise yourself tomorrow. Well, you should always number your days. You should never promise yourself tomorrow. You have no idea if you will stand before God the remainder of this day or when that will be. Second, given that the earth and the heavens will be purged by fire, what ought we to do who have so many sins? Right? God's going to come and, he, and the, the fire of Jesus is going to purify everything. So what ought we to do who are sinful? We ought to seek for holiness. We should strive for godliness. We should live to be pure. Calvin puts it this way, he says, the corruptions of heaven and earth will be purged by fire, while yet as the creation of God they are pure, what then ought to be done by us who are full of so many impurities? Everything's going to be purified. We're impure, therefore get pure. Therefore pursue holiness. Therefore walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. Therefore imitate Jesus Christ, therefore pursue godliness, therefore put to death your sins, right? Pursue holiness, that sanctification without which uh, we will not see God. Another commentary says, Peter exhorts them to live in the sphere of God's holiness so that when the great and awful day appears, they continue to live in the presence of God. Right? It is the lawless, it is the unholy, it is those who don't care about God's holiness, that don't care about imitating His holiness, who will be cast out of God's presence when Jesus returns. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, that is practicing holiness, right? Doing the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare them I never knew you. But then what does he say next? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Depart from me, all of you who chose not to pursue holiness. 
as you were exhorted to by the apostle here. Depart from me, all of you who just live for your flesh, whose next thought was the next thing you did without any filter of scripture or any conscience before God. To them, he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And if you've ever faced any disappointment in this life, when you hear those words, you will die inside. Because there's nothing after that. There's nothing more after that pronouncement. There's eternal suffering for you. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, okay, the ones who hear the words and act on them, who pursue holiness, who pursue sanctification, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. So knowing that this fierce wrath of God on the day of judgment is coming, where where Jesus returns with that sword from his mouth and fire in his eyes, what manner of people ought you to be? You ought to be those pursuing holiness, pursuing to live like Jesus, putting to death sins. And it's exhausting work. Third, notice that verse 12 says that we are to look forward to the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, and then says to speed its coming, to hasten its coming. That's a weird thing to say, right? I mean, how in the world could we have an effect on the hastening of the day of the Lord? Um, Our version puts it, hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. If God has appointed that day, how in the world can we speed his coming? I think a way of putting this would be along these lines, we are to wait hastily. We're to wait hastily, right? Or, or we are to patiently wait with godly impatience would be another way to put it, right? Or, or we are to wait but with eager anticipation, right? The way kids just can't wait for when you leave on vacation, right? They're waiting but they're not waiting. They're waiting, but they're, they're already 100 miles down the road before you've gone out the door. That's how we should be with the second coming of our Lord. Like a child that sees you know, a stack of gifts on his birthday, he has to wait, but he does so only by thinking about the act, actually opening up the gifts for the next six hours. It's anticipatory patience or patient anticipation. I don't know. It's it's a it's a it's a um, a paradox. Another way of encapsulating the saying to is is by the word Maranatha. Right, come, O Lord, come, O Lord. Or as we pray in the Lord's prayer, Your kingdom come, and yet give us this day our daily bread. 
as long as we're still here, give us this day our daily bread, the mundane, right? Help us with that. But your kingdom come is what we really, 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 really want. That's the primary prayer. Your kingdom come. It is proper for the Christian, indeed it is obedience for the Christian, to long for Christ's return. Our waiting has a purpose in that we seek for godliness while we can, but our waiting has a godly impatience to it too. We should long for the cataclysmic reordering and restoring and recapitulating that Christ will bring when he returns. Looking upon heaven and earth with those eyes as flames of fire. Another tangible, very tangible way we hasten the day of the Lord's return is to preach the gospel to all the nations. Right? Where is our missionary zeal today? Right? I, I think there are missionaries and there are missionaries who have zeal. But our missionary zeal is nothing like it was even 50 years ago. Right? When, when the evangelicals shamed the Reformed, right, in their, in their willingness to preach the gospel to all the nations. Where is our missionary zeal today? But remember, Scripture says this, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in, all, in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. <laughs> Whoa. That's hastening the day. Get out there and evangelize the nations. The church has to do that work until Jesus returns. That work is to go and make disciples of all the nations. And that certainly is a way to impatiently wait, to hasten the day. I think that, that verse is what motivated Adoniram Judson and others to, to forsake everything they knew, to go around the world and to, to work for 40 years before they... well. I don't think it was 40, but it was 20 years before he saw a convert. Because he knew that this was hastening the day of the coming of the Lord. And he knew that God was being patient so that those who did believe, were, it was their salvation. What we are not to do is lazily forget about his appearing. So many drunk people that have dulled themselves to Christ's appearing. That's what we should not be. Spiritually drunk and unaware of what is next. So many Christians who live without the blessed hope of His appearing. We are to pursue our own personal holiness and the holiness of the nations. That Christ is returning is, is no reason, A, first of all, that Christ is returning is no reason, A, to get into your bunker and just lazily wait because you think his appearing is imminent. Right? To hell with the world. I'm getting in my bunker. Jesus is going to come Tuesday next week. Right? Well, that's to miss the seven days of missionary zeal you could have given yourself into and the fact that the patience of God hadn't yet worn out and there were others who needed to come to Christ that, that God would have used you to bring in. So we can't do that. And on the other hand, we can't sink ourselves into a silly triumphalism because you think his appearing is far off. 
right? Both of those have a tendency to make us withdraw from missionary zeal, withdraw from the pursuit of holiness, withdraw from things, right? If something is, I mean, you think about it. Think about this. Think about this. It's been how many years since Jesus was crucified? You can go with the ballpark. That's good enough. 2,000. Now take that point and move backward into redemptive history. Where does that take us? What's 2,000 years before the cross? Approximately. Does anybody know Old Testament dates? When is, when is David king? Come on, folks. Come on, come on. I guess I went to seminary, and so those are the stupid things you learn. 1050? 1050? Right? Around 1,000? So that gets us back to David. What's 1,000 what's before that? Abraham-ish? Yeah, about Abraham. So that's how much time has passed since Jesus was crucified, and he's been patient, right? If we went backward that amount of time, it's Abraham. I mean, that strikes me. That strikes me that that's a long time. And yet there are those that say, well, it's still far, far off. Right? We've got this and 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 this to have happen. It's so far off. And that, in, that in a sense, has a, it leads to a different sort of... Um, it can lead to a different sort of sleeping and slumber. Well, it's so far off and, and I won't be around. So why do anything now? Peter says, be a certain kind of people, be godly, be zealous, be his witnesses while you wait with anticipation. And what is coming is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right? We just went through in Sunday school class the, the, the observations of, Ecle- of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and, and all of his views can be boiled down to a world in which righteousness does not dwell. Right? Life in the fallen world. And yet Peter's hope and the hope of the gospel is that there is a world coming in which righteousness dwells. Right, as much as unrighteousness dwells here, even more so will righteousness dwell in that world. It will be stupendous. It, it, it will be everything that we've always wanted. We will never be disappointed. Right? It won't be we build something up, build something up, build something up, and then we get to the reality of the moment and it's like, oh, and that didn't go well, and I said this and all these things, and you leave disappointed. Or that vacation, I thought it was going to be glory and it just wasn't. It was kids puking. And in heaven, there's none of that. There is none of that. Righteousness dwells there. There is no sin. There, it, it, is, it is as things should be all the time, every day, every night. It is a world in which righteousness dwells. You can, anticip- you can anticipate in the coming world that what somebody else is doing is good. Can you imagine that? No one will have any mixed motives. 
Can you imagine relating to people that way? Not being skeptical? Not being cynical? Not being on guard? You won't have to be in heaven. Righteousness will dwell there. It's, it's inconceivable. Now, the Apostle Peter circles back and says a similar, similar thing to what we've been contemplating. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. The return of Christ is to be an impetus to diligence. It is to spur us on to activity. In particular, he says, he says, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. This verse makes it clear that even as we look to Jesus, Jesus will be looking at us. Jesus looks at us. Right? Be diligent to be found by him. In other words, think of those false teachers and how they described, they're described in the previous section in chapter 2. They were stains and blemishes, but you, dear brothers and sisters, are to be spotless and blameless. Right? You are to be found by Jesus being like and living like Jesus himself, who is the spotless Lamb of God, even while the false teachers are staining, stains and blemishes and doing everything they can to not live like Jesus himself. Also, when Jesus returns, he will be at war with those who reject him. Jesus will be at war with those who reject him. He will be at war with false teachers and those who love the darkness rather than the light. But with his children, he comes in peace. He will return. His return will not lead to his children calling for the rocks and mountains to fall upon their heads. But rather, they'll rejoice. If you don't dance that day, you will. You will know how to dance on that day. I guarantee it. And at that point, his ultimate and lasting peace will be announced to you. Uh, what joy there will be on that day. What glory. What joy. That is what I live for. That day. That's what I live for. That's all I want. There's nothing else I want. The Apostle Peter says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And then in a rather extraordinary passage, he makes reference to the letters of the Apostle Paul. So Peter says that. And then he makes reference to the letters of the Apostle Paul even combining them together with the rest of Scripture, he says. And so it's direct proof that the, the, the writings of the Apostle Paul were considered Scripture. The Apostle Peter knew Paul's writing was sacred Scripture. Of course, here we get the oft-quoted phrase that there are some things hard to understand in the letters Paul has written, and we all say, Amen. There are some things hard to understand, but there is a faithful way to respond to the hard writings of Paul in a godless way to respond to the hard writings of Paul. Right? The godless, when they come across the hard teachings of Scripture, the godless, distort them. Right? That's what Peter says. They distort them. 
Note that those that do this distorting of the hard sayings of Scripture are called the untaught and unstable. In other words, they are not fixed on the Word of God. They're, they're, they're moving from one thing to the next. They, may have, they have, may have studied many things. They may be even experts on some of those things. They may even have their PhDs, but they are not students of God's Word. Right? And the only proper student of God's Word is the one who has what? Faith. Faith. Faith is a prerequisite for understanding God's Word. Faith. Faith that, that comes out of that new birth and that regeneration that He's given to us. And, and because the scriptures can only be understood by those who have it illumined to them by the Holy Spirit. Okay? These men are also described as unstable. They do not have a firm and unmoving standard. One day their standard is science. The next day their standard is their horoscope. Then perhaps the one day it is something they read in the Bible. And then their standard is, is Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Then the next day their standard is of truth is the drug dealer they visit at the CVS on the corner. And the Christian standard for truth, though, is the unchanging word of God. They are not unstable. They are fixed on God's truth. Outside of that unchanging standard, right? All is shifting sand. Everything is shifting sand outside of that one unchanging standard. And it shifts every time some unstable mind makes some kind of unproven hypothesis. But not so with the Word of God. It is eternally true. It's extraordinary, right? That is an extraordinary thing. It's eternally true. There's nothing like that. There's no, no other thing like that. This is the one fixed, stable, unchanging truth. <clears throat> and the whole world thinks we are crazy to have Scripture as our standard. Right? They think we're crazy to make statements like, this is truth, unchanging truth. Right? And they want to lodge all kinds of complaints or they want to dig into philosophy and make philosophical arguments or they want to do this and that. They want to point out contradictions or they want to do these sorts of things. And so be it. I don't care. I don't care. I wouldn't be a Christian if I wanted the world to love me or to think that I was sane. I believe what's written here in these words. I believe what's written in Scripture to be a good testimony of itself. The faithful, though, do not use the difficult portions of Scripture to come up with a distortion that serves their own lust and greed. No, the faithful search the Scriptures and they study it and compare Scripture with Scripture using the clear passage to help interpret the unclear. And they are willing Listen to this. They are willing to follow Scripture, not treat it like a wax nose to suit their desires. They're willing to go where Scripture takes them rather than to make Scripture 
change or tweak or their, their truth change to suit their desires. And so are you devoted to the Scriptures in that way? Are you devoted to the Scriptures in that way as an unchanging standard of God's truth? Do you search them to know the answers to the questions that pop up in your very human heart and mind? Do you take your existential angst to the Word of God? Or maybe it's not existential angst. Maybe it's just like, I would like to have a wife. Do you take that question to the Word of God? Do you mull over what, what it teaches you? Right? Do, do you do this? Do you seek to understand your place in the world by what is written? Do you seek to understand your own rowdy heart by what is written? You know, why do I get like this? Why am I such a, you know? What a shame when we do not do that. What a loss. If we don't do that, we'll be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. We'll just be pushed about. And the next, the next book that's published by Inner Varsity Press will make us accept all kinds of things that are not scriptural. If I could get you to do anything as your pastor, as your shepherd, it would be to put it would be to be in the word of God as much as you possibly can. That's it. Be in the word of God as much as you possibly can. Uh, take up and read. Take up and read. Do it. Take up and read the Word of God. You will be helped. You need help right now because you feel all the political angst I feel. But take it to the Word of God. Don't take it to Facebook. Please. As your shepherd, don't even take it to parlor. Right? The con so supposedly conservative alternative to, to whatever. I'm not going to get into that. Listen to this. Listen, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not even behaviors, but your thoughts and intentions will be dealt with in this book. Well, that's really painful, but... Medicine is often painful. Medicine is, tastes bad. It hurts. makes your hair fall out. The Word of God will be like that sometime. It'll make your hair fall out. Now the final two verses of this wonderful letter of the Apostle Peter. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, this is my prayer for all of you. Uh, children of the church, this is my hope for you. Um, be on guard against the error of unprincipled men. If not, you will fall from your own steadfastness. Right? Be on guard. Live your life on guard. Um, test what the spirits are teaching. Test what others are teaching. You, you have... You have the, the test kit. Test what's being taught. 
Calvin says the meaning is this, that as long as we are in the flesh, our tardiness must be roused. And that this is fitly done by having our weakness and the variety of dangers which surround us placed before our eyes, but that the confidence which rests on God's promises, promises ought not to be thereby shaken. Right? We, we have to be reminded of our weaknesses. And I just want to stop and say something there for, for a second. Most of you have sat under my preaching, some of you for a long time. My preaching style um, can be taken the wrong way. (laughs) We need to have our weaknesses pointed out to us so that we can be on guard. And and it's not browbeating, right? The purpose is not browbeating. The purpose is you are sheep and I am the shepherd, right? And, And if you think that's an insult, Take it to God, right? He, he, he used those words, right? But, but we need to be warned, right? You can go to a thousand churches where you will get a nice lecture on C.S. Lewis. Barf. I mean, I like C.S. Lewis. He said some good things. But that is not what you want from the pulpit of the church. You need to be warned from a watchman, Right? And I get to stand on guard, and I hope I'm faithful to that. Think of what Richard Baxter does in Reformed Pastor, or the men have been reading Jeremiah Burroughs' Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I mean, those words dig into the heart, and it, and it is so that in knowing ourselves, we might stand against those who would tempt us to give in to those weaknesses and sins. Right? It's so that we can be built up and stand against those who would draw us away. I know it's fatiguing, right? I know it's fatiguing. I know it's fatiguing, and, and you, you wish that I were more encouraging in my sermons. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Uh, the watchman stands watch against the enemy. That's my calling. The shepherd stands watch against the wolves. And teaches the sheep. We need more pastors. We need more pulpits. We need more churches that are concerned about wolves and concerned about false teachers and will actually warn their people. And not only is it wolves and false teachers, it's also the sins of our own hearts, which are probably the most likely thing to draw us away from God Himself. So we need to be taught about our sins. Right? So that's why I do what I do. That's why it's exhortation every time I get into the pulpit. You know, and that's why sometimes the next book I choose, I choose because it's a little more positive. Right? Yeah, let's, let's do Colossians next. Let's do Philippians next so that we can have a little shot in the arm. But then you open up Colossians and Philippians and it's the same stuff. It's the Apostle Paul pounding you into the dirt. And it's glorious. And it's glorious because it's meant to build you up. And then second all, second, last thing, rather, he says, okay, so he says, be on guard against the error of unprincipled men, and then rather grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Calvin says this on that passage. He says, don't stand still in the middle of a journey. 
Don't stand still in the middle of a journey. You're in the middle of a journey. You can't stand still. If you are not learning of God, if you are not pursuing God, if you are not uh, mortifying the flesh, if you are not doing that, then you're standing still in the middle of a journey and you'll never get to the destination. You've got to keep going. You've got to think about and rejoice in and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Read, pray, sit under good teachers, meditate on his word, sit under a tree on a hill and enjoy his creation, but sing his praises. Don't let it just warm your body and make you have good inward thoughts. Vocalize your thanksgiving to God, and then that tree and that hill are profitable for you. Right? Sing praises to God. The moment you stand still in your growth, you will give into your natural inclinations and the sins of your heart. Growth must be continuous. And here's the kicker. God is never boring to study or to think about. Take one attribute of his a day. Just take one attribute and roll it around in your head, searching the scriptures for verses that might address that attribute. That which we, you know, it's the truth. That which we love, our minds dwell on. That which we love, our minds dwell on. Okay, so think about God. Search his scriptures for those things. And then the Apostle Peter closes with this doxology. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. It's an extraordinary proof of Christ's deity right there in that verse as it describes eternal glory to Jesus Christ. And it's a fitting end to these letters meant to encourage Christians who are suffering. Even now when God seems distant and quiet, he has all glory. These last days are not bleak because he is king, right? He is enthroned above and his glory fills his creation. He will bring home all of his children, not losing even one of those he's loved since the foundation of the world. The apostle Peter has once again fulfilled his calling given him by Jesus Christ. Tend my sheep, right? In the writing of these letters, he tended his sheep and he tended you, even this many years later. He's still tending God's sheep. I pray he's done it in you and through the preaching of this book written by Peter as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit.